and welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, men's and boys' issues. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our guest today is Jem Lester. Jem is the author of a new book called Stumm. He was a journalist for nine years, and during his journalistic career, he, among other things, saw the Berlin Wall fall in 1989, and he also had a background, has a background as a teacher, teaching English and media studies. He has two children, one of whom is profoundly autistic, and for them, he accepts total responsibility. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bill. Nice to be with you. So, Jem, your new book, uh, Sturm, it, it's a novel. It, it won, in fact, the 2013 PFD City University Prize for Fiction. But do you draw on your own experience for the for the characters that are so well fleshed out in this book? Um, well, yes, certainly the central character, Jonah, uh, who's a 10-year-old profoundly autistic boy who has no language, doesn't speak, um, I very much draw my own experience of raising, of raising my son. Uh, who will be 16 in July. Um, so many, many of the episodes, a lot of the experiences and the feelings that are expressed through um, the other main protagonist, Ben, uh, come from my direct experience, yeah. Well, uh, yes, uh, it's interesting you talk about the, the son in the book, uh, Jonah, because the, uh, the person telling the story, the main character, Ben, uh, there, there are times when you'd really like to strangle him, don't you think? I mean... <laughs> I agree. He has a drinking problem. He, he's not really interested in working for most of the book. Um, you know, I just get the feeling sometimes I'd like to give him a kick up the backside. That's been a, that's been a response from a lot of people, actually, which is good. I, there are, there's plenty of the book that I don't like him in. <laughs> he's not overly stoic, and I think that comes across. And his, his lack of uh, initiative and his lack of drive, I think, is also part and parcel of the whole situation that he's found himself in with, with his son and, and with his wife and, and the, the amount of stress and dysfunction that the whole thing is uh, is presenting. Yes, I'm, I'm very slow to criticise anybody who has a child with a disability. Uh, I know that the stress and the effort it takes for the parents, so uh, although uh, there are times, as I say, I'd like to strangle him, I, I have still have every sympathy with, uh, with Ben and with all the characters in this book. The book raises the, the costs, the physical and the emotional and the financial costs in raising a child with severe autism. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the system in the UK because I was astounded at the at the costs. Yes, certainly, Bill. Well, there is a, a really a huge lack of specialist provision, certainly for those kids that are on the more profound end of the autistic spectrum. And the education system over here um, has moved towards having units within mainstream secondary schools or especially support teachers for autistic children within mainstream settings because it's an awful lot cheaper. But the major issue is that the school day, as it runs in, in Britain, runs from 8.30, 9 o'clock till about 3.30, o'clock. And then we have these very long holidays, half terms and Easter and Christmas and six weeks through the summer. Now, that's fine for a kid who has no issues. But for a profoundly autistic kid that has a, you know, great learning difficulties, 
it's a nightmare because trying to get them to maintain or retain any knowledge or any learning they've had, they lose over these holidays. Mm. And for the families, you know, these days are just not long enough. Um, so it's, it's a major issue. And the reason it's so expensive is because you do have wonderful residential secondary schools that are now actually starting to take uh, children from the age of five. But they are privately funded by donation, most of them, or through philanthropy. And there is only a finite amount. And these kids need a one-to-one system. They need a waiting day curriculum, which means that from the moment they get up until the moment they go to bed, everything for them is taken care of. They're learning all the time. Their learning is seamless. And it's a very expensive thing to provide. And so there really isn't anything that isn't private for these, these kids with this level of autism in, in the UK. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but the upshot of that is that with a one-to-one and the various therapies that they provide these kids need, these schools can cost up to about £200,000 a year and more per child. Yes, that, that was just an extraordinary figure, I thought, that uh, 200000 per year. But then the parents don't actually pay it. it has to, you have to go through this process with the local government authority, I think. Yeah, the, these schools won't take private funding, which I'm, I'm all in favour of because, uh, well, listen, if you have to spare £200,000 a year, that would be one thing anyway, but um, they will only take the funding from a local authority, which is far more equitable as far as the kids are concerned although the attitude of the different local authorities, I mean, in London, there's, I don't know how many there are, about 35-odd, it, it, it differs from authority to authority. Some are much more progressive and lenient about spending the money, because bear in mind, that for one child per year takes a huge chunk out of their budget, and others, uh, others will fight you tooth and nail. Um, so it's a major, it's a major stress, anxiety, and a huge financial commitment just to fight these cases, to take to educational tribunal over here. There's a chance you might not win, a good chance. Uh, and even if you do win, you don't get costs back. And so, put it this way, when we, my, I went through the whole process with my son, um, and it cost just shy of £40,000 to fight it. It seems the money is going to the, the lawyers rather than the, uh, the schooling of, of, your, of your child. Exactly. And it's made it's made very very difficult, very difficult. Now, if you can if you can manage to come up with that money by selling your house and beg, borrowing and stealing from everyone, that's one thing. But if like the, the bulk of people who uh, who are living day to day caring for a wonderful and and loving, joyous autistic child, coming across the knowledge of how to do that and also the finances to be able to do that is prohibitive. Mm. So there is still a bar. You know, there's still a bar against those people that may not have the connections or the understanding of the system as it is. And, you know, you're not advised by the local authority what to do. Mm. You know, they'd rather hide the information from you. So that's where your £40,000 went on, on finding out from the lawyers what you had to do? Yeah, because you have a barrister does the arguing, you have solicitors that do all the groundwork, you then have to get supporting evidence from uh, child psychologists, speech and language, occupational therapists, and each one of these has to visit the child and then visit the prospective place of education. And each one of these trips and visits can cost a thousand pounds, you know, anywhere between seven hundred and a thousand pounds. So every time you're making a phone call and asking someone to go out to provide a report, you know, it's it's absolutely digging to the very, very bottom of your pockets. 
which might make the system hard to change if it's entrenched in that way. But the parents' financial obligation, I suppose you've still got it over those long summer breaks and those other breaks, but uh, that's the end of the, the educational um, obligation on you, is it, once you get into the, one of these schools? Yeah. I mean, it's taking you once, once you're lucky enough to manage to get into one of these schools, then, yeah, it's taken care of. The problem is, is as these children get older, certainly they get bigger. There is the, the amount of things that they can do when they're at home within the community become less and less and less. I mean, you might have a, uh, you might have a kid who's uh, 10 or 11 years old who would really benefit from going to one of these sort of jungle gym, soft play area kind of places, but he's too tall. You can't take him in. They have a height barrier. And so there's an ever-decreasing number of places that you can take these kids to entertain them. And if they're stuck at home, it's just, it becomes incredibly difficult for everyone, and they get very bored. And when they get bored, they get frustrated. And it's uh, it's a very stressful life, especially for the kids, for the parents especially too. Well, it's the, the whole extended family, as we know from your book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. Uh, this is a song by the Righteous Brothers, and it's called Unchained Melody. Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers, and we're speaking today with Jem Lester, who is the author of a book, Stumm, which talks about the relationship between a child with autism and his uh, parents and grandfather. So there's a, there are a lot of there are a couple of generations of fathers and sons in this uh, in, described in this book. Uh, so I, I wonder, Jem, uh, if you could describe uh, how the day is filled for these children at these schools, if you're lucky enough to get into. They all live in uh, separate houses. 
Uh, I'm speaking of the one particular school that I know very well, that my son is in, and there's maybe, I think, a maximum of six or seven kids, all who have a specific key worker. And they all have their own room, so they still require um, some help with toileting. A lot of them will still be in pads and nappies overnight, you know, however old they are. And they may, well, they may well wake them up at like half five in the morning to take them to the toilet because that's a, it could add back to time that you might gaze that a child is actually going to need to go to the toilet and then they'll go back to bed. And then they're showered and they're dressed by the staff and they sit down and they, you know, they have their breakfast in the house and then they go to school like any normal child would go to school, but it's on campus. And all the way through to this, they're using the same um, communication system, which is called PEX, which is the Picture Exchange Communication System. So they have these little square laminated cards with Velcro on the back, uh, and they have a, a graphic picture, say, of an apple or of the toilet or whatever, and then the word written in English uh, underneath it. And they gradually learn to exchange these pictures for what they want. Now, that's carried through all, the, all day, and everybody from the care staff who look after them to the teachers who happen in class during the day all use the same system. All the information about the child, whether it be their particular mood, if there is something that's setting off uh, a tantrum or an aggressive episode, is all noted down. So it's completely seamless and everybody knows exactly where they are with each child. So they'll be in school um, pretty much for the same amount of time as a, a mainstream child will be in their school. Then um, after school, they will go back to the house or they'll go walking around a track and there's a wood, lots of outdoor spaces, and they have a, a country, uh, countryside, little countryside centre with um, pigs and some horses. And they've got greenhouses where they can start to learn how to plant seeds and watch flowers grow. Or they'll be back at the house doing activities with their key worker, again using the same communication system, etc. And then they'll go for, they'll, they'll obviously have lunch, and then they'll go for their meal, and then they play again in the evening or watch some television, um, and then they're, they're settled, ready and settled, and, and they go to bed. And the whole thing is um, is a routine. And because with a lot of these children, transitions are very, very difficult. So if you change the routine, if they're not certain what is going to happen next, then that's when anxiety can arise. But these children need the routine. It removes the stress from them. And when, they're, when they have no stress, when their anxiety levels are, are very, very low, that's when they can learn. Mm. And that's why it has a positive effect. That's why these kids need that kind of concentrated attention. And they'll go to bed and the day will start again, the, mm. the following day. But they also take them out on trips. You know, they go, they go to the seaside. They go everywhere. They have a really, really good life. I mean, my son, I can say, um, he's just, at the moment, he's in an amazing space. He's just fun, he's laughing, um, he's very, very chilled, he's incredibly laid back. Um, and that's, that's the beauty or the most important thing about it, because it's not, I'm his father and I love him, but I'm also, more importantly, I think the custodian of his life. It's my job to ensure that, that his world is, is not infiltrated by the kind of stresses and strains that they would be, that would happen if he, if he wasn't in that environment. That comes out through the book that uh, despite all the the very difficult circumstances with uh, toileting and temper tantrums and uh, um, but the love does come through and 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 I guess what was particular interest for me in the book 
you're dealing with a couple of generations of, of fathers and sons. The, even though those relationships are very different, do you think there are some similarities between your relationship with your son and, and the um, character Ben's relationship with his father, George? George um, is is a fictionalised character that has no relation, really, certainly not to my father. Um, but he is a symbol of kind of the, the older wisdom, and I've met lots of older sort of Jewish men that just they seem to have an affinity with, with children. They seem to be very, very good with young children. Mm. My relationship with my son was a lot less, and has always been a lot less fractious and, and uh, than, than Ben sometimes appears to be with with Jonah. And I, I was always very, I was very accepting of his of his autism very early on, actually. And you know, people have asked me to write about how I dealt with finding out, getting a diagnosis, and I said, well, to be honest, I, I, by that stage, I was so in love with him, mm. and I was already kind of uh, kind of new by then, that I didn't I didn't really suffer from it. So I was. I was very, very hands-on always. Um, I don't think I suffered the kind of nervousness or the the frustrations that that Ben suffers with, with Jonah to that extent. Although there are, you know, there are obviously similarities. A, a number of pa- um, places in the book, there are some uh, wonderful expressions. Yeah, you describe at one stage the relationship uh, of a father to his son as uh, as, as being hilarious, fleeting, precious. And I think that sums up uh, beautifully the uh, the relationship at times between father and the son. With my son and with other autistic kids like this, sometimes my son is present when I'm with him. Actually, I went to saw him on Saturday. Sometimes he's present and he's with me. Other times I can go down there to see him and he's he's not really that bothered. But on Saturday, he was just in such a great mood. He was giggly, he was laughing. And we went to eat, and now he will sit down in a restaurant, and he will eat with a fork, and he's, you know, he's great. And then we went to the park, and he came and sat down next to me on a bench. Um, and, he, and normally he won't sit very close to me, but he sat right next to me, and he bent his head towards me, and we put our foreheads together, and he had this grin mm. on his face. Mm. And then he leaned back and took his head away, and he still had the grin on his face, and he picked up my hand very gently and brought it to his mouth and kissed it. And that, I think encapsulates the idea of it being fleeting and precious. Because when you have that level of contact and and genuine physical and kind of emotional contact with a child like this is, those are the joyous moments that that can last you months and years. Mm. And they're very, very special. And um, what what they won't do is do something they don't want to do. There's no side, there's no jealousy, there's no resentment. So when they do something that has as special as that to you, you, you feel it incredibly deeply in every pore, you know, in every cell of your body. It's just wonderful. Yes, I think sometimes fathers may put off talking to their sons and, and sometimes leave it too, too late. The father might even be dead. But in some ways, it's perhaps easier for, for a, a father to talk to an autistic child who you're not sure it's going in and he won't respond to you, but you can perhaps open up more like the character George in the book. I think that's certainly true. And I think the problem for Ben is that he never had that kind of relationship with, with George. He didn't have the kind of relationship where they could converse. Mm. I mean, I've got those who will read the book will discover that there is a, you know, there's a history to, to George which means 
which, which kind of explains the, 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 the difficulty they have in, in communicating. But with Jonah, it's, it is much easier. You know, it, it's, it's easy to be with someone that listens and is a good listener. Mm. And you don't necessarily need to have the feedback. So I, de- I definitely think so. I mean, certainly, again, with my son, when he was coming home for holidays, I would, uh, be, he loved being outdoors, so we'd be out in the park, we'd be walking, and I would just let him lead. And we'd just be strolling along, kind of together, but not. And it was incredibly peaceful, and I could talk, I'd be in my own thoughts, or talk to him. And it was, it was, great, it was great company. I think if, 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 if you allow yourself to be in the moment with these kids, and just, you know, to go into their world, then it's fantastic. And, yeah, much easier than, than someone like me who would rather do anything than have, have a, you know, have conflict. Not run away or lie rather than actually have to tell someone what I'm truly feeling. And there was the grand irony because I realised that without any language, you know, my son and Jonah in the book can communicate their needs and wants perfectly well without saying a word. And I know from my own experience, and in Ben and Gail George in the book, they don't know how to do that. You know, he is much better at expressing what he needs without language than I am, or Ben is, or George is, um, with all the language in the world. And that's one of the major themes of the book as well, I think. I mean, it's a whole idea of communication and the lack of it. There's a nice quote from George in the book where he says... uh, Fathers are squashed between their own father's dreams and the dreams for their own children, which is a, a nice way of putting it, I think. Jim, uh, we've, we've reached the stage of, the, uh, of our discussion where I'm going to ask you if you'd like to pick a song. Could you tell us which song you've picked and why you've picked it? Yeah, I've picked uh, The Boys of Summer by Don Henley. I think what I love about this song is that it's a lead jack and it, it, it looks back in time and it's about... The, the disappointment and some grief and wishing that you could be back somewhere and, and uh, be back in that moment and back in that time. And I do have that kind of... Occasionally I can, I can sit and sort of wallow in my own self-pity and look back and think, God, things are great then. Plus, I just adore the opening of the song. There's a rhythm to the, to the tune which is just mesmeric for me and it's very soulful.
And that was The Boys of Summer by Don Henley. And we've been speaking today with Jem Lester. Jem is a, a, now a novelist of the new book Stum, in case anyone's wondering, means uh, uncommunicative and silent. Is that correct, Jem? Yeah, it is. Um, or voiceless. Mm. So it has all those meanings, which uh, just came to me and I thought that kind of encapsulates the whole thing. Uh, we'd like to thank especially our guest today, Jem. Thank you very much for being on the program. Don't forget, we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. You can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, send us an email, and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our shows, go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. So uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air.